Our text this morning is John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. And um, if you're able to uh, have a Bible in front of you and open it up to John chapter 20, I think you'll find that helpful. Um, or if you need to do that in a browser window, the equivalent, that's fine too, as long as it won't distract you. So yeah, please do have a Bible open to John chapter 20. We're focusing on verses 19 to 31 that we heard read. And this passage has a lot going on in it, actually. It tells us how Jesus appeared to the disciples on the day of his resurrection, Easter day. And it tells us how Jesus appeared to Thomas eight days later on the octave day of Easter, as we say in our Anglican jargon. But this text isn't just about what Jesus did to get Thomas and the other disciples to believe in him. Um, it's not just about what Jesus did to get Thomas and the other disciples to believe in him. It's also about what Jesus is doing to get us to believe in him. Of course, many of us here today believe in Jesus. We believe that he died for our sins, that he rose again to give us new life, and that he rules over our lives. If you're one of these people, pay attention because this text tells you your backstory, your history. It tells you how Jesus got you to the point of believing in him. And I think also some of us here today aren't sure whether we believe in Jesus. There may be things we like about him a lot and other parts of the story we aren't so sure about. Um, if you're one of these people, then pay attention too because this text may be telling you your future. It tells you how Jesus is planning to bring you to faith in him. So, as we go through this passage, we'll be focusing on three things that Jesus does in this passage. He shows, he sends, and he blesses. So first thing is that Jesus shows himself to the disciples, confirming for them the resurrection. The second thing is that Jesus sends the disciples, and he empowers them by the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's word of salvation and judgment. And the third thing is that Jesus blesses those who, though they have not seen him, will believe in him through the disciples' word. So those three things, he shows himself, he sends the disciples, and he blesses. He shows, he sends, and he blesses. And by these three things, he teaches us about this one big plan, his plan to bring you to faith in him. So let's get into it, starting in verses 19 and 20 where Jesus shows himself to the disciples, confirming to them his resurrection. And this part of the story takes place, as verse 19 tells us, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. That is, it's still Easter Sunday at this point in the story. The news of Jesus' resurrection has been out in the world for only about 12 hours, something like that. It was just earlier that day that some of the women who loved and followed Jesus came to the tomb and found it empty. We read about this last week, didn't we, in Mark chapter 19. Well, as John chapter 20 tells it, one of those women, Mary Magdalene, then brought the news of the empty tomb to the disciples. But at that point in the story, her big news isn't, hallelujah, Christ has risen. Instead, it's, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She doesn't yet understand or believe what's going on. Well, in response to what Mary says, Peter and another disciple run together to the tomb to see for themselves. 
and they see the same thing that the women have already seen, the empty tomb plus the empty grave clothes lying in the tomb. And verse eight tells us that when the other disciple sees these things, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. But so far, he's the only one. Even though Mary and Peter have seen basically the same things he has, they don't yet believe. Peter and the other disciple go home, but Mary stays looking into the tomb and weeping. And Jesus appears to Mary there. That amazing story in verses 11 to 18 of this chapter deserves a sermon of its own some other time. The point for our purposes is that by the time we get to our verse 19, Mary has seen not only the empty tomb and the empty grave clothes, but now she's seen the risen Lord himself. And so in verse 18, she can return to the disciples with a news update. Earlier that morning, she reported with anxiety that the tomb was empty, but now she reports with joyful faith, I have seen the Lord. So that's what's happened right up to the point where we started reading. All of this action took place that morning, and now it's the evening of that same day. And the disciples are hiding out somewhere with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Now, of course, everyone in this story is Jewish. So for fear of the Jews means for fear of the Jewish authorities, the chief priests and the scribes and so on, who had conspired to destroy Jesus. And in fact, who had just two days ago on the Friday, successfully conspired to destroy Jesus. They had succeeded at getting Jesus arrested and killed. The disciples are huddling together in fear that the same people who conspired to destroy their dear teacher and leader may now be conspiring to round them up for the same treatment. In fact, at this point of the story, uh, I think it's all in their heads, but they're very afraid. They've heard the women's report about the empty tomb confirmed by Peter and the other disciple, but now they've heard Mary's second report that she's actually seen the Lord. Even after hearing all this, though, nothing in our text, nothing in this text suggests that these reports have ignited faith in the disciples. It's nothing to suggest that they yet believe. And Luke tells us explicitly in chapter 24 of his gospel, 24 verse 11, that when the disciples heard the women's initial report, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the news that's been coming into them all morning about the supposed resurrection of Jesus seems to them, I guess, just too good and too weird to be true. So instead of relieving their fears or lifting their attention to the amazing work of salvation that God is doing in their midst, instead of that, all this news has just added a layer of confusion and stress on top of what they were already feeling. Not only are we terrified that we're going to get arrested and killed, now we also have this weird case of the missing body to solve. And should we be worried that our friend Mary is seeing things? So it's into the midst of this fear and confusion that in verses 19 and 20, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hand and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus shows himself to his disciples 
confirming that the reports they've heard about the resurrection are really true. And he deliberately shows them his hands where they can see the marks of the nails and his side where they can see the wound from the spear that pierced him. These marks of the crucifixion on his body prove that it's really him, it's really Jesus, the same Jesus who was nailed to the cross and pierced with the spear. He's the same person, though something about him is very different. He still has those wounds on his body, but they're no longer hurting him or killing him. Even though the doors are locked, he's able to come and stand among them. So there are all these strange things that show us that though his body is a real human body, it's able to do things that our bodies can't do. And though he's living a real human life, it's a very different kind of life than we're familiar with from our own experience. Well, when the disciples see Jesus, they see and know that he has truly risen from the dead. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, it says. I think that means they saw and believed. By showing himself to them, Jesus confirms to them his resurrection. They can no longer think that the women's reports were just an idle tale because now Jesus has made them witnesses of the resurrection along with the women, along with Mary. They've seen it for themselves and they can no longer deny it. And because the disciples for all their faults basically love Jesus, they're glad. They're glad for Jesus to prove this to them. Imagine if Jesus had appeared after his resurrection to the chief priests and the scribes. He didn't do that, but just as a thought experiment, imagine what if, what if he had done that? What if it had been the chief priests and the scribes, Jesus' enemies, who had discovered the empty tomb? And what if Jesus had appeared to them and shown them his hands and his side? I guess that like the disciples, Jesus' enemies would have had to admit that he had really risen. But I don't think they would have been glad to see him. So I think this little thought experiment helps us to see what Christian faith really is. Christian faith includes propositional belief, belief that things really are a certain way and that certain things really happened, centrally the resurrection of Jesus. It includes that kind of propositional belief. But more than that, Christian faith means believing in Jesus, trusting that he's willing and able to save us, trusting that what he says is true and good, and trusting our lives to him. When the risen Lord Jesus appears to his disciples that evening, it's to ignite in their hearts a full Christian faith. He gives them faith, both propositional belief that he really is risen, and also a trusting belief in him. And I think the disciples' gladness when they see him is a sign of that full faith. They're not just believing that he's alive, but they're trusting that it's important and wonderful news for them. So I said there's three things Jesus does in this passage that are all part of Jesus' one plan to bring people to faith in him. And this is the first one. Jesus shows himself to his disciples, confirming to them his resurrection. He brings them to faith by showing himself to them. But we're going to see as we continue in this passage that this is not the main way Jesus plans to bring people to faith. So let's move on to the second thing Jesus does. This is in verses 21 to 23. 
after he shows himself to the disciples, he sends them. Jesus sends the disciples and empowers them by the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's word of salvation and judgment. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the one that comes right after this in John chapter 21. Basically, at that point in the story, the disciples have gone back to Galilee, where they're from, and they're in a boat fishing on the lake. And Jesus appears to them again, standing on the shore, and he calls out to them across the water. And the bit I like best is that when they get to the shore, they discover that Jesus has been preparing for them a picnic breakfast. It says a charcoal fire in place, a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. That always sounded so nice to me. I love that story. It sounded wonderful to me, wonderful to me just hanging out on the beach with Jesus, eating grilled fish. That sounds incredible. And wouldn't it be lovely if the whole Christian life was just like that, one long picnic with Jesus? Well, I think there are aspects of the Christian life that are like that, and the rest to which God is calling us will be a lot like that. But actually, the Christian life now isn't just one long picnic with Jesus. It isn't that. Because Jesus didn't come into the world just to hang out. He didn't rise from the dead just to hang out. And he didn't appear to his disciples on the day of his resurrection just to hang out with them. He's on a mission. And he has a mission for his disciples. He tells the disciples in verse 21, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Well, what is it that the father sent Jesus to do? A lot of ways we can answer that question that would um, be right. One really clear answer comes in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Let me read John 3, 16 to 17. I'll paraphrase a little bit in the second verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. The father sent his son into the world to save us and to give us eternal life. That's why Jesus became incarnate, lived a life of perfect faithfulness, gave his life on the cross, rose again, and later ascended into heaven. Everything Jesus did, everything he does, is part of the mission his father has given him to accomplish the mission to save us and bring us eternal life. Now, after his resurrection from the dead and shortly before his ascension into heaven, Jesus tells the disciples, as the father sent me, even so I am sending you. Just as the father sent Jesus, Jesus sends the disciples and he sends them on the same mission, the mission to save us and bring us eternal life. Now, of course, Jesus and his disciples have very different roles in that mission, right? Jesus alone, Jesus alone saves us from sin by his death on the cross and opens the way of eternal life by rising from the dead. The disciples don't do that. They can't do that for anybody. Only Jesus does that. He does it once for all. But the disciples do join him in that mission 
because they're the ones who will spread the word about Jesus. They'll spread the word. I said at the beginning of this sermon that Jesus has a plan to get us to believe in him. Jesus wants us to believe in him because it's as we believe in him and entrust our lives to him that we receive all those benefits that he's won for us. Salvation, forgiveness of our sins, new life in the spirit, and one day eternal life with him. All of these things come to us as we hear and believe the word about Jesus. And Jesus' plan is that we will hear that word, the word about him, through his disciples. He's going to accomplish this last stage of his mission by sending them to you. He's going to send them to you just as the Father sent him to the world. So what do you think? Do you think they can do it? Are the disciples up for the job? No. No human being is able to do this job. No matter how intelligently or passionately or charmingly we testify about Jesus in our words and in our actions, we do not have the power to ignite faith in anyone's heart. Even if we could prove that everything the Bible says is true, uh, it still wouldn't be a full Christian faith that we could ignite in someone's heart. The disciples can't do that. But they will do it. Their words will ignite faith in the hearts of others. Because the, the Father and the Son will be working through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Their words will do more than is possible because the Father and the Son will be working through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And verse 22 continues, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is what makes it possible for the disciples to join Jesus in his mission from the Father. Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit. He empowers them with the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus continues in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it's withheld. Or I think a, a slightly better translation would be, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of anyone, they are retained. Part of the mission Jesus gives the disciples, part of the power he gives them in the Holy Spirit, is to forgive and to retain the sins of others. This is kind of shocking to some of us, to me too. Jesus gives this mission and this power to the whole body of his disciples, to the church as a whole. So one of the ways that the church exercises this forgiveness and retention of sins is through ordained ministers. About half an hour ago, at the beginning of this service, um, you heard our pastor say these words. After we confessed our sins to Almighty God, Keith said, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, desires not the death of sinners, but that they may turn from their wickedness and live. He has empowered and commanded his ministers to pronounce to his people being penitent the absolution and remission of their sins. He pardons and absolves all who truly repent and genuinely believe in his holy gospel. So why does our pastor say this every week after we all confess our sins? 
It's not because uh, it's his word that really counts for forgiveness. It's not because he has some magic power to forgive sins. But it is because he's empowered and commanded by God to pronounce to us God's word of forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, God promises to forgive all who repent and believe. That's what God promises. And so our pastor has the power and responsibility to pronounce God's forgiveness to the penitent, to those who really repent. On the other hand, your pastor has the power and responsibility to pronounce God's retention of sins to the unrepentant. For example, if your pastor knows about some sin in your life that you're refusing to repent for, you will not be allowed to take communion. Not because it's your pastor's job to decide who is and who isn't invited to the Lord's table, but because it's your pastor's job to listen to the Lord about who is and who isn't able to come to his table. And this too is part of Jesus' plan to bring you to salvation through faith in him. If your pastor pronounces God's retention of your sins because you're unrepentant, he does it so that you will be moved to repentance, turn from your sin and receive God's forgiveness. So some of the ways that the church announces God's forgiveness of sins to the penitent and God's retention of sins to the unrepentant are particular to the office of the pastor, right? Only men and women called and ordained to be pastors have the particular job of pronouncing absolution and of admitting or not admitting people to communion. But in many other ways, all Christians, all disciples of Jesus participate in this mission of proclaiming God's word of salvation and judgment to the whole world. For example, when your friend says something to you like, I really messed up this time and I don't think God will forgive me. And you say to your friend, Jesus knows you're a sinner and he still loved you enough to die for you. And I know that if you ask him for forgiveness, he will forgive you. He'd love to. When you do that, you're bringing God's word of forgiveness to your friend. Or when your friend says, oh, I'm sure God doesn't care about this thing I'm doing. He has other things to think about. And you say, actually, what you're doing is wrong. And God does see it and he does care. When you do that, you're bringing God's word of judgment to your friend. And when you have this kind of conversation, you're participating in Jesus' plan to bring that person to salvation through faith in him. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of anyone, they are retained. Jesus says this, all of this, to the whole body of his disciples, his whole church. He gives his Holy Spirit to all Christians. And he sends all of us, though sometimes in different ways, to proclaim God's word of salvation and judgment. So remember, Jesus does three things in this passage. First, he shows himself to his disciples, confirming to them his resurrection. Second, he sends his disciples and empowers them by the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's word of salvation and judgment. Third thing Jesus does in this passage is that he blesses those who, though they have not seen him, will believe in him through the disciples' word. Jesus blesses those who, though they have not seen him, will believe in him through his disciples' word. 
Let's continue in verses 24 to 25. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, that was just his nickname, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now notice that this is exactly the very words that Mary Magdalene had told them earlier in verse 18. The disciples didn't believe Mary when she told them that she had seen the Lord. And now Thomas doesn't believe them when they tell him that they've seen the Lord. Thomas tells them, in fact, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He won't trust the report of his friends and fellow disciples. He will only believe what he can confirm with his own senses. So we come here in verse 26, finally to the part of the story that takes place on the eighth day after the resurrection, the octave day of Easter. That's why we're reading this story today, the week after Easter. That's in verse 26, that the disciples are all together again. This time Thomas is there too. And once again, all the doors are locked. But although the doors were locked, again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then in verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So already from the last time that Jesus appeared, we know that there are many things about his body and his life that are different than ours, right? He can appear wherever he wants to, which he does again in this passage. We now learn something else, something hugely important for Christian faith. We learned that Jesus can hear what you're saying, even when he's not there. It's a big deal, right? We, we pray to him every week or perhaps every day. So it's good to know that that's true. <laughs> all that stuff that Thomas said, even though he wasn't praying, actually, all that stuff Thomas said last week while Jesus wasn't around, Jesus heard it. And Jesus is able to respond to what Thomas said. Thomas wanted to see the marks in Jesus his hands, to touch them with his finger, and to place his hand in Jesus' side in the spear wound. And Jesus' response to Thomas is to say, okay, go ahead. He invites Thomas to do every part of what he wanted to do. Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him in verse 28, my Lord and my God my Lord and my God. The text doesn't say explicitly whether Thomas actually ends up touching Jesus or not. I think maybe the most natural way to imagine this scene is that Jesus' appearance and his invitation to Thomas are actually enough for Thomas. Thomas might be surprised by what he really needs to believe. My guess is that he probably doesn't have to actually go through with the touching, but it's important to say that I could be wrong about that. And Jesus sounds like he would have been up for it if Thomas didn't want to go through with it, right? Jesus makes that invitation. I don't know whether Thomas did all that touching before he confessed my Lord and my God or whether just seeing Jesus was enough. But whatever the case, Jesus' appearance has the same effect for Thomas as it did for the other disciples. It confirms for them beyond any reasonable doubt that the resurrection has taken place, that Jesus really is risen. 
And Thomas's great statement of belief in verse 28, my Lord and my God, shows that he's able to work out the implications of the resurrection pretty quickly. It's pretty impressive, actually. He, can, he realizes that if Jesus has really risen from the dead, if he really has overcome death, then he must be my Lord. The one with authority over everything, authority over death and authority over me. And he realizes that he must be my God, the God of Israel himself, in the person of his incarnate son, at work in the world to save. You could preach a whole sermon on verse 28, but our focus this morning is on verse 29. After Thomas's great confession of belief, Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You believed because you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. The main contrast here is not between Thomas and the other disciples. Everyone in this whole story so far, everyone in John chapter 20, has only believed once they saw. The disciple who ran to the tomb with Peter saw the empty grave clothes and he believed. Mary Magdalene saw the risen Lord and she believed. All the disciples except Thomas saw the risen Lord and his wounds and they believed. And now Thomas sees and maybe touches Jesus' wounds and he believes. Everyone so far has seen and then believed. That's the pattern in John chapter 20. They see and then they believe. So though people often call Thomas doubting Thomas, right? That's a, a common way of talking about this passage, the story of doubting Thomas. Though we call them that, Thomas actually isn't really more doubtful than the other disciples in this passage, right? He doesn't really need much more than they need to believe. They all had to see before they believed. Remember that back in verse 20, Jesus showed his hands and his side to all the disciples. So what Thomas saw on the octave of Easter is the same thing that the other disciples already saw on Easter day. So Jesus' point in verse 29 isn't that Thomas should have believed earlier like the other good disciples did or something. No, the other disciples didn't believe earlier. Like Thomas, they believed only when they saw the Lord and his wounds for themselves. So the contrast Jesus is making isn't a contrast between Thomas and the other disciples. It's a contrast between all the disciples so far and all the generations of believers who will follow them. When Jesus blesses those who have not seen and yet believe, he's blessing people who are not in this story, people who are not in John chapter 20. Jesus is blessing all you Christians and all you future Christians out there. All you people who have come to faith and will come to faith in him, not because of what you see, but because of what you hear. Jesus is telling Thomas and the other disciples about his plan to bring you to faith. He's signaling to them that the way he brought them all to faith is not the way he plans to bring most people to faith. Jesus' plan is not to just keep appearing to people. He can't do that because there's something else he needs to do instead. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that after his resurrection, 
Jesus did for a while keep on appearing to his disciple. He kept on appearing to them at different times and different places in different combinations of, of people for 40 days, a period of 40 days. That's a great round biblical number, right? But after 40 days, he ascended into heaven. And Jesus had already talked about this when he appeared to Mary Magdalene, actually. Look a little bit further back in chapter 20 to verse 17. Here's something that Jesus says to Mary when he shows himself to her. John chapter 20, verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers, that's the disciples, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Because I haven't done everything I have to do yet. I haven't done everything I was sent to do. I We've heard about this also in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, haven't we? We talked about it a little bit this morning in the catechism class too. We've talked about it as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, how Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. interceding for us and preparing a place for us to live with God forever. That's where the risen Lord Jesus and that's why he can't be here with us today in the way that he was with Thomas then. Can I uh, ask someone to tell me whether I'm coming through okay? I'm getting a little message from my computer. I see uh, Glenn going like this. Okay. Um, well, I'll just do my best, folks. Let me rewind a couple of sentences for your benefit. Yeah, we heard in the book of Hebrews, right? How Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. He's our great high priest there. He's interceding for us, praying for us, and preparing a place for us to live with God forever. So that's what the risen Lord Jesus is doing right now. That's why he's not here with us today in the way that he was with Thomas. He is present to us, of course, by his Holy Spirit today and every day and every Sunday. But he's not present to us the way he was present to Thomas, is he? He's not present here in his body. While Jesus talks with Mary on Easter morning and talks with Thomas on the octave of Easter, and while he appears many times to his disciples over the course of 40 days, all the while he knows that after those 40 days, he must ascend to his father. He must ascend to his father so that he can complete the work the father sent him to do, the work of saving us and giving us new life with God forever. So in verse 29 of our text, Jesus is signaling to Thomas and the other disciples that he's not going to keep confirming his resurrection to people by showing himself to them, by making personal appearances every Sunday. Once Jesus ascends, people will no longer believe in him when they see him because they won't see him anymore until his final return. Instead, people will believe in him when they hear about him, when they hear the word that he's given his disciples to proclaim. Remember, Jesus sends the disciples and empowers them by the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's word of salvation and judgment. Why? 
because it's through that word that he's now bringing people to faith in him. Jesus' plan is for us to come to faith in him and to grow in faith through the hearing of God's word. And this is why, among other things, God gives us the Bible. Look now at verses 30 and 31 of our text. We're almost finished here. Verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is, the signs that are written in this book, these are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Here, the human author of the Gospel of John is telling us why he wrote it. He wrote it so that we might believe in Jesus and by believing have life in his name. That's why the human author of this text wrote it. The human author of this book wrote this book for that reason. But it's also why the Holy Spirit authored the whole of scripture. The Holy Spirit working through a team of prophets and apostles and scribes over many centuries brought you not only this book, the Gospel of John, but this book, the whole Bible. And why did the Holy Spirit bring us this book? So that you can know who Jesus is, believe in him, and by believing have life in his name. It's significant that even the disciples that we've been reading about who saw the Lord with their own eyes, even they had to learn who he was by reading the scriptures. One of the main things Jesus did with his disciples while appearing to them over those 40 days before his ascension was small group Bible study. You can read about this in Luke chapter 24. Even they needed to learn who Jesus was through the scriptures. And of course, the Bible doesn't do its work by sitting on a shelf. The Bible ignites new faith and feeds existing faith when it's read and heard, when it's lived and proclaimed. Again, this is the mission of the whole church. Your pastor does this when he preaches from God's word every week, except this week when I have that privilege. But you do it too when you talk to your friends about who you know Jesus to be and what you know he's done. When you tell your friends what you know about Jesus, you're taking the word that God gave you in scripture and you're putting it in your friend's ear. You're passing on that word of God, the word of his judgment and of his salvation. You're passing it on so that your friend may believe in him and by believing have life in his name. And of course, nobody, not your pastor when he preaches, and not you when you talk to your friends, can ever do this. We can never speak words that ignite faith, except by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, whom you have received from the Lord, and who works through you and your words. Every one of you who is a Christian this is how you became a Christian. Someone, maybe a clergy person, but probably not, maybe a parent or a sibling 
or a friend or a stranger, maybe, someone or some number of people brought you God's word of judgment and salvation. You heard the word they brought you and you believed it. That person who brought God's word to you was no genius. They were no super apostle. But the Holy Spirit used their inadequate words to put the word of life in your ear and in your heart. That's how you became a Christian. And every one of you out there who's not yet a Christian, this is how Jesus plans to get you to believe in him. If and when you become a Christian, you'll be able to look back and see that God was putting people in your life who would bring you his word. Maybe some of them were pretty weird. Maybe the way they spoke was kind of awkward sometimes. But the Holy Spirit used them. The Holy Spirit used their words to put his word in your ear and in your heart that you might believe in Jesus and by believing have life in his name. So you're the one that Jesus is talking about in verse 29. You're the one Jesus is blessing when he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen.